welcome to Swarthmore Presbyterian Church's podcast. This is your host, Alex Evangelista. We are delighted you are here, and don't forget to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. You are now listening to a special episode from our Anti-Racist Faith Lecture Series. This is a Zoom recording of our conversation with Dr. William Yu, who spoke on Presbyterian Church history and race. God's ministry uh, for racial justice. So let me share my... All right. So in lies, my teacher told me everything your American history textbook got wrong. Uh, James W. Lowen finds several problems with how slavery is taught in high schools across the United States. Uh, Lowen observes that white Americans, uh, at least at the time of his writing in the mid-1990s, and we can talk about whether how much things have changed in 2020, 2021. But he observes that white Americans remained perpetually startled at slavery. Even many years after high school, he found that white adults were aghast when confronted with the horror and pervasiveness of slavery in the U.S. past. It seemed to him that white adults, or at least many of them, didn't learn or too quickly forgot that George Washington, for example, and Thomas Jefferson were among the multitudes of white Americans who owned enslaved black persons as their human property. Lowen surmised that the ignorance of white Americans on slavery, for him, he traced it back to high school classrooms. He argued that history textbooks incorrectly presented slavery as in his words, an uncaused tragedy that minimized white complicity and activity in the enslavement of black Americans. He in his reading of these textbooks, he saw that high school students were meant to feel sadness for the plight of, for example, nearly 4 million enslaved Black persons in 1860, but not anger toward the approximately 390,000 white enslavers, because these enslavers and their unjust actions didn't really appear in the pages of the textbook. Since Lowen published his textbook, his book in 1995, there have been strides to improve our teaching and learning on slavery. Yet the backlash against a more comprehensive curriculum on slavery and anti-Black prejudice reveals the need for an assessment, I think, of how congregations like yours and seminaries like mine are engaging these educational debates around slavery, uh, racism, and racial justice in American history. As I reflect, on my experiences, first as a theological student and now as a theological educator, I'm more than concerned, I'm actually quite convinced that seminary classrooms are also failing to provide instruction that properly captures the totality of white Christian involvement in slavery and anti-Black racism. The perpetual shock, for example, among some of our students here at Columbia Seminary and in some of not Swarthmore Presbyterian, but in some of the congregations that I've had the pleasure of visiting in person and virtually, uh, uh, the perpetual shock over some basic historical facts about slavery is alarming to me. One pernicious myth that I've encountered is the notion that most white uh, Christians in the antebellum period were abolitionists pushing for the immediate emancipation of enslaved Black persons. This is simply not true. Very few white Christians held this position, and there was little support for immediate emancipation in, for example, the Baptist, Episcopalian, 
Methodist and Presbyterian denominations. Many white Christians, including white Presbyterians in the Southern states, for example, defended slavery so vigorously that some black and white abolitionists identified white churches as actually the most impenetrable strongholds against their cause. Benjamin Morgan Palmer, a white Presbyterian pastor in New Orleans, who had previously taught at Columbia Theological Seminary, preached in 1860 that slavery was a providential trust that whites must preserve and perpetuate because the natural condition of black Americans was servitude. Palmer mocked Northern abolitionists for thinking that black persons could survive alongside whites as equals. Here's the thing though, Palmer was neither reviled nor rebuked for his, I think what we can say are white supremacist views, rather he was widely celebrated and he was elected to serve as the first moderator of the newly formed Presbyterian Church of the Confederate States of America in December, 1861. I've recently discovered also, he was one of the highest paid clergy in 1860. I think the average salary for a clergy person, and generally, sadly, back then it was mostly a clergy man, was $600, six to $800. A Presbyterian clergy, some were paid more, um, up to about $12,000 US in um, 1860. Benjamin Morgan Palmer at First Presbyterian Church in New Orleans, his annual salary in 1860 was $4,000. So just to compare that with. Um, so uh, we can talk more about that in a moment. So Black Christians like Frederick Douglass uh, and Sojourner Truth and uh, Theodore S. Wright, the first Black graduate at Princeton Theological Seminary, class of 1828, emphasized the eradication of anti-Black racism was an essential component in their abolitionists, in their abolitionism. But even uh, white Christian abolitionists in the Northern states fell woefully short in their advocacy against anti-Black racism. So for some abolitionists, including Presbyterian abolitionists in the Northern states, they really tried to differentiate or uh, even separate the causes of abolition and anti-Black racism. So their argument was for abolition. Certainly slavery is a wrong that goes against the precepts of the Bible, but we are not advocating for the eradication of prejudice and um, anti-Black racism. So again, I'll talk more in a moment about I think for my students and I, when we study it today, it seems like, um, it just seems like a very strange, peculiar argument. How can you be for one, but against the other? But one hint that I've shared with my students and in my own research and writing that helps me understand how they were able to differentiate or separate the two is from Archibald Alexander. Um, I think he was the first uh, appointed professor at Princeton Theological Seminary when it began in the 1810s. Uh, he was moderator of the Presbyterian Church in the USA Denomination General Assembly, 1807. Um, and so in 1846, he wrote, and so he was one of these, I am against slavery, but I am also not advocating for civil rights and equal rights for black persons. Uh, so what he said is he, uh, along with some of his colleagues and many white Presbyterians in Northern states, 
they uh, favored or endorsed what was known as the American Colonization Society or the ACS. It was this movement to send free black Americans to Liberia. And so it had several motivations. At one level, the motivation was world mission, that um, we want uh, Presbyterians, for example, among other Protestant denominations in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, they were sending white missionaries to, uh, to China um, and to uh, other parts of Asia and to, in particular, West Africa. And so it was this idea, who, who would make for the best missionaries? Like who are the best candidates that, um, that can serve God and spread and share the good news of the Christian gospel in Africa? And it was this idea that perhaps Black Americans, African Americans were the best missionaries because they did not have a different skin color as the, the people that they were, they were seeking to serve and share the gospel among. Uh, and also, there was a kind of public health reason. Perhaps they would be less susceptible to the diseases uh, that some white missionaries were uh, falling ill and succumbing even to death too. So that was one. But another reason, and this is something Alexander and Robert Finley, he was actually probably the founder of the American Colonization Society in 1816, 1817. Um, it was solving not only the the call of world mission, if you will, in West Africa, but it was the problem of anti-Black racism in the Northern states. Uh, he felt, Alexander as well as Finley, that the discriminatory contempt that he saw many white Americans hold against Black Americans, in his words, it was simply too insurmountable to overcome. Uh, and of course, that's, um, that's hard to grapple with, I'm going to be honest. I think so what do I take from that? One is, initially, there's a lot of um, rebuke, right, on, for me as a historian. This idea that to, to suggest that a sin is too great so that the, the proper Presbyterian Reformed Christian response is to give up seems antithetical to everything we know and hold dear about the Christian gospel. So, and I think that's... Um, I think that's appropriate, appropriate evaluative assessment or judgment. But I think as a historian, what it also reveals to me is the severity, ferocity, tenacity of anti-Black prejudice. I think as a historian looks back and looks at um, discourses like Archibald Alexander, it really does reveal the, the prevalence of anti-Black prejudice and racial discrimination among uh, white populations in the Northern states. And of course, Alexander wasn't the only one to say this. In Democracy in America, Alexis de Tocqueville, the French uh, political theorist, uh, I think it's 1828, 1820s, he wrote it. He also noted in Philadelphia, not too far from where you all are as Swarthmore Presbyterian Church, the severity and the tenacity and just the ugliness of, of white prejudice against uh, black persons, the black population. Um, and so even the Tocqueville noted that even if abolition were to happen, it seemed to him that there was also an adjoining problem of how to tackle uh, racial discrimination against Black Americans, that abolition alone would not solve the problem.
so this was kind of Alexander and others. Uh, that was their approach. It was this idea of, um, in some ways, the solution was, how do we remove free Black persons from the northern states? I think another example of this is in Ohio. And this was something that um, pro-slavery uh, Presbyterians, uh, this was one of their retorts, if you will, against white abolitionists was, so you want us to free all of uh, the enslaved Black persons in our southern states? Uh, what will happen once they are free? Uh, they are not allowed to own property in many of your northern states. They are not allowed to hold, have, have the same access to protection like firearms that white citizens do. And for example, states like Ohio, they had the Ohio back Black Laws, 1807, I think, that really, uh, really the aim of the laws were to make it so undesirable and so difficult for free Black persons to live in the state that they wouldn't come. Um, so, so that was a part of what was all going on then. Uh, but let me move forward for now, and then we can uh, touch upon this. So again, for Alexander, it was this idea, as he understood it, perhaps it would be better for all free Black Americans to leave the United States and find another home where their skin color would not be despised and held against them. Um, so that was what was happening then. I think in many cases and thinking today, and we'll talk in a moment, I don't know that um, seminary classrooms, and we can talk some about, I guess, Sunday school congregational classrooms. I don't think we treat slavery as an uncaused tragedy in the same way that Lowen read it into high school textbooks. Uh, some of us who are parents of middle and high school children, we could probably also compare. I have an eighth grade uh, daughter and I can compare her education compared to mine. And it is vastly different in terms of how she is learning about US history. But I do think that some of our teaching and learning, at least in theological education in seminaries like mine, continue to minimize white Christian complicity and misdirect the anger students should feel about slavery. Rather than fully grappling with the histories and legacies of economic exploitation, sexual violence, and virulent anti-Black racism uh, perpetrated in some cases by white American Christians, uh, students are left with a neatly packaged lesson on slavery centered on the dangers of bad or deficient biblical interpretation. Like the biggest lesson I feel like I came away with in seminary and even I wonder if some of our students at Columbia come with when we study the past and slavery and anti-Bellic racism is, oh, the Bible can be used as a dangerous weapon. So we shouldn't prove text and we shouldn't isolate a few verses and take them out of context and use them and wield them against, you know, other people. Uh, I think, so some of my students immediately look at the, the recent debates and divisions over LGBTQ plus inclusion and human sexuality, and they draw parallels right away. Like Christians today are using the verses, different verses, but in the same way. Um, and I think that's not like a bad lesson, right? That's a good lesson to have. But I think to too quickly skip over what really happened. 
like the depth of the complicity. And in some cases, for example, at a seminary like mine, the active defense and participation and ownership of enslaved Black persons that white Presbyterians in and around and involved with Columbia Seminary held, like that part is kind of just, I don't want to say it's glossed over, but it's not grappled with in the way I feel as though it should, if it's going to be helpful. I feel like such instruction that emphasizes biblical interpretation, as good as those lessons are, actually fails to make the crucial point that the abolitionists in the 1840s and 50s themselves made, which was to identify and confront the anti-Black racism that white Christians held. For example, and I'll end with this, in 1845, in Frederick Douglass, a formerly enslaved person who escaped enslavement uh, in Baltimore, Maryland in the 1830s. In 1845, he published his narrative or autobiography. Here's the 1847 edition. And that differentiated between what he called genuine Christianity and in his words, quote, the corrupt, slaveholding, woman-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land, end quote, in his narrative. Um, So that's kind of where we are. And I think um, in our ongoing pursuit of anti-racism and racial justice today, um, I think in the perhaps in the world that I inhabit, which is theological education first, uh, I think we need to engage in a more complete kind of understanding of the history and uh, so that we can uh, move forward from there. I think it's difficult. I think, um, I think, and I'll end with this, lots. So I will say in, in our classrooms, I think one common refrain is we agree with Frederick Douglass. that that's not, that's not Christianity. But then what perhaps is more difficult is, I think perhaps there's common agreement about that. I think, um, and everyone here on this Zoom might agree with that, but it's wrestling with the fact that it's not, it, that's true, that that was false, that was a hypocritical Christianity, that it was an evil version of Christianity, if you will. But what we can't say is that like, but Christians still were involved in it. I think another answer some of my students and I, we want to say is, but they really weren't Christians, right? The women and men who participated in and owned and beat and defended uh, black enslavement. And I think maybe we don't know the answer to that question of whether they were Christians or not. Although many of my students are fairly convinced they were not. But I think for me as a historian, What I can't say is that they self-identified as Christians. They were recognized as Christians. Others saw them as Christians. Presbyterians like Benjamin Morgan Palmer were revered and highly regarded clergy. Um, They were moderators. They were missionaries. They were stated clerks. They were involved at every level of like the Presbyterian Church, capital C. So yes, we can say, So what does that mean, right? So we can say, okay, they weren't Christians or that wasn't Christianity. But I don't know, and I'll conclude with this, I don't think we can say that that wasn't Presbyterianism. I I just don't think that's historically true. I think historically we can say that that was the wrong kind or a bad kind of Presbyterianism. And we can certainly point to the good and the virtuous and the heroic and the courageous witness of 
Presbyterian abolitionists, and and to say that that was certainly um, also true, and we can honor their witness and their legacy. Um, but at the same time, I I think a historical approach in seminaries and maybe congregation like yours has been like not holding them in tension, but simply lifting up one and kind of see the other one just kind of disappears from view. Um, and maybe, and I'll, I'm going to stop sharing my screen here now and we can hang out some. Yeah, sorry, I went over. But uh, but yeah, that's, so all these are the questions I'm asking. I don't know that I have a lot of answers to these questions yet. For example, to, for my last point, I do think there's been a lot of elevating the, the good in Presbyterian history, but it's been minimizing or just totally deleting the bad. Maybe that is the best way forward. Maybe the bad is so bad and so evil, it's not worth even like discussing. It's not worth even like uh, remembering or acknowledging. But then, and maybe like, I don't know, as an ethicist or as a theologian, that sounds pretty good. But as a historian, that's not very satisfying to me because we can ignore it, but their legacy is still with us, right? So then it, it's not as if... Um, it's not as if we don't know and we can't feel the present consequences of this kind of evil Presbyterian witness. And so I guess the question for all of us is like, what do we do with that? But I'm gonna end there and we can hang out and talk some, thanks. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Yu. And I invite you all to put yourselves on the gallery view again so we can see each other. Um, and thank you for laying out that history and that really, the really important distinctions and the questions that you raise. And I appreciate, you know, you pointing um, back at the seminary, but I also think, right, that invites us to point back at our understandings and the church um, as well. So I um, know that Dr. Yu is really um, interested in engaging us in conversation um, around what he's laid out here and then what that stimulates for us in thought. So um, I would invite some, I would invite questions um, at this point. And uh, Susan, yeah, do you have? Thank you. So I, I'm not sure how clear this will be because there's so much going on in my head, but um, one place to begin, I think, is if you are advocating a recognition and it sounds like maybe that is something you would like to see, at least in seminary. And if, if, if that could be done, how do you see it being done? And, and I guess the second part of the question is, since we are so still living in such a segregated world during worship on Sunday mornings, what do you see happening anywhere in the country where white and black Christians Presbyterians in particular, are coming together to kind of talk through these issues. Um, and I'm not suggesting that Black Christians teach white Christians about what they go through. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm asking is, do you see where there are fruitful conversations between Black and white Christians as part of a reckoning process and and do you see that working if if you do if it's happening does it seem to work oh hey hey susan thanks um no that's a really good question i think 
So I was asking um, Sarah in the minutes before we started um, about your congregation. And um, so I think, I don't, I don't know that there's a one size fits all, right? Solution or prescription, if you will. Um, so I can share one thing that is discouraging to me before to get to the encouraging parts is certainly there are a lot of efforts that are not working. I think that is, that is clear. Uh, I think for example, um, even, and I don't know how much of the really fierce school board educational debates that are happening in states like yours and mine and everywhere um, about critical race theory uh, and how it's kind of evolved. I think, um, so I think one challenge, and maybe this is more for children and teens than adults, because that's where I feel what I, how I'm receiving and interpreting the school board debates over kind of teaching racism and slavery and settler colonialism and uh, the extermination of indigenous peoples, all of that um, is there seems to be a lot of backlash or antipathy towards the idea of the point of the lessons and the assigned textbooks, if you will, shouldn't be to make white kids feel guilty. Um, and there seems to be a lot of backlash in response to that. Um, and I think the, the question, the questions that are raised certainly with that is, um, and I don't know what that's like in congregations like yours. I can say in some of the congregations I visited in the state where I, I live in Georgia, there is certainly maybe not to that like ferocity, Susan, and to all of us, but there is certainly that. So there are some several responses. One is that that was the past and we've moved beyond all of that. So why, why are you um, so focused on that and teaching that to us, right? And I think, so for me, that's not as hard a question to answer for me. I can, I simply say I'm a historian. This was my, this is my area of research and your pastors and session invited me to come. <laughs> and so this is what I'm going to do for an hour. And then if, you know, and that's what it is, right? But I do think the greater questions are, I think I like the way you put it with the reckoning is I do, I do genuinely think that there hasn't been a, a full on, if reckoning is too strong a word, a full on kind of grappling with like what the past was and kind of where we are today. And so um, I think, I think, I think one of the challenges and we'll keep opening it up is like, how do we move from a defensive posture to a posture of openness, to a posture of vulnerability, to a posture of recognition and a posture of like, like wanting to pursue the goodness of God's work in racial justice. So one of the, the ironies, if you will, let's just take the Presbyterian Presbyterians in the United States. I'm not saying best denomination, best people, but that's who we are and where we are. It's a relatively small group. Probably, I want to say, 
across all the different Presbyterian denominations, probably less than 3 million out of 300 million, probably maybe 2 million. I think the PCUSA is the largest at 1.1, 1.2 million. This other denomination, the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, is the second largest, probably at 300 to 350,000. I think generally, Presbyterians actually don't agree on a lot of stuff. We don't agree on how to interpret the Bible, how to read the Bible. We don't agree on what's called a historicity or the, that did all the events that the Hebrew Bible, for example, attest to actually happen the way the Hebrew Bible describes them. There's some disagreement about that. We disagree about LGBTQ inclusion. We disagree about the fundamental question of who can preach at the pulpit. Can women preach at the pulpit? Should churches welcome uh, queer and trans people as Christians? There's a lot of disagreement about all of that. Even environmentalism, there's a lot of disagreement. But there is actually agreement at a fundamental level about the sinfulness of racism. And there is fundamental agreement that racism... Oh no, we seem to have lost him. Oh gosh. <laughs> Now, hold on. Hopefully, I'm sure he'll jump right back on. Yep. That's okay. So anyways, long story. That's um. So it's exciting because there's a lot of agreement about needing to combat racism uh, as Christians. But what's discouraging is there's not a lot of agreement about how. And so, Susan, to all of us, I think the... I don't know that I have the, the right answers in terms of how. I think it's for every congregation to discern and decide best how we can contribute or participate in, in what we believe is like righteousness and justice and what God wants us to do. More often, I can actually share, and what I've shared with you, Susan, all of us, a lot of things that aren't working. And I think that's okay, too. Not that these things aren't working, but to be honest, that these things are not working. I think one thing that is so there's been a lot of investment in kind of equity training, for example, in the corporate world. Maybe some of you here on this call have received some of this training or are reading books like White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. I think to me, um, and again, it's hard because news tends to sensationalize and pick like the, the most fierce opposition to it all. But I think generally there's, it's working in some cases to help those who are wanting to, to do more, but in some ways it's also not working, that it's not really bringing people along. And so I don't think it's to judge that the books and the equity trainers and the experts are wrong, but it is to be honest to say, this doesn't seem to be, this might not work in my context. For example, I, one of the screenshots I shared with you is like, um, and again, it's hard because you wonder if it's sensationalized, how accurate is it? But uh, teachers at one school, really upset about this exercise they did in kind of pre-school uh, year training about the privilege pie and this idea that if I am white, I occupy, I have this much privilege. And then if I'm cisgender, I have this much more privilege. If I grew up in the middle class and higher, I have this much more privilege. If I am male or I'm a man at this end. And there tends to be like, at my seminary, I would say largely exercises like that are somewhat helpful. Like they, they work, right? Sarah, you can say even from your time at Columbia that it would be helpful and it would lead to generative, vulnerable, good conversation and it would help all of us. But I think it's to understand that in some context that that might not be a good step one. It seems to me in that school district, that wasn't a good step one. 
Uh, and so again, it's not to criticize the exercise, but it's to understand maybe to Sarah and to all of us kind of reception. And it's hard though, because you also don't want reception to like dictate what you do, right? Like, what do they say at Columbia Seminary? We like to say a lot, Sarah, maybe we said it when you were here too. Some of it, some people attribute it to Walter Brueggemann, this Old Testament professor and scholar. Like the, the idea of ministry is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Have y'all heard that? It's also attributed to poetry. I think there's a, poetry, a poet who says that. But then, um, but I, I don't know. And at seminary, we're all like, yeah, that's really awesome. We should do that. And then alumni come back two, three years later and they say, ah, that didn't work. <laughs> and so anyways. Yeah, yes, I do remember hearing that. And I do remember it attributed to Dr. Brueggemann. So much was attributed to Dr. Brueggemann. He, he, you know, he's offered a lot, that's for sure. Um, Joyce, I see your hand and I also see Amy's. Um, so I'm gonna go, Amy, I'm gonna go to you first and then I'll come to you, Joyce. Sure, great lecture, thank you so much. Um, I'm curious sort of how you'd see, right? So if like we draw a line with, you know, the trajectories that you were talking about or talking about like, con like consolidation of power, um, thinking specifically about seminary education and entire congregations of black and brown folk who are locked out of that, um, particularly within, you know, our tradition. So how would you see sort of the role of, um, maybe shifting some of those power dynamics and like what role seminary education has to play in that? Like, are there ways that as a denomination, we should be thinking about um, bringing other people in and giving them access to, because if we think about privilege pie, right? Like who gets to go to seminary, <laughs> you know, and thinking about um, congregations as being so, so segregated. Um, wonder what your thoughts are on that. Oh yeah. Thank you, Amy. Do you want, can I, uh, Follow up real quick, Amy. I'm going to put you on the spot just sure, for a moment. Sure, go for it. <laughs> I hear you consolidation of power and uh, questions about equity and access. Mm -hmm. um, so if seminaries were to um, make it more financially, that's just one barrier. There mm -hmm. are several I think you've named. I think that's the one that seminaries, particularly uh, seminaries with healthy endowments like mine, mm -hmm. that's um, a barrier that can be lowered, if you will, like, how far would that get us? Like, does that oh, get us yeah. half the way there? Does that get us five? I, like, that's my question. Oh, yeah. Does that get us five steps to 100? Or does that get 95 of the 100 steps? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I don't know. I like full disclosure, the impetus for the question comes, I come from higher ed, and I know well the cost. Um, and just, it's something that I wrestle with in my own field. And then I look at my Christian faith and I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like, like I work with these, you know, I've worked with as a community organizer with brilliant African-American pastors who would love nothing more than to get top-notch theological training and just being completely locked out of the most progressive seminaries. And it's, it's just, yeah. I don't, so yeah, I don't know. I'm just wondering what, um, there's only working as someone who's in higher ed, there's only so far you can push from being inside the institution, right? In some ways it takes, you know, those in the church are outsiders pushing to hold accountable um, for things like relaxing that endowment a little bit. Um, <laughs> but there's certainly ways I would imagine that a lot of our seminaries can, can find ways to, to loosen that. I don't know. Um, not responsible for the purse strings, but definitely curious. Oh yeah. Thanks, Amy. I think, um, so let's just take, our denomination, the PCUSA, 
Um, so at one level, there's access to education or equitable access to education. I think there also have been questions about equitable access to ordination. Um, and so what happens in presbyteries? What happens in congregations? Um, and so I think there are multiple layers, which I know you do too, as someone in higher ed. Um, so then, um, yeah, so that's all there. I can just share briefly uh, from what I know of the history and what I found really helpful to me is uh, there was a caucus or a group within the, before reunion in 1983, there was uh, the, People call them the Northern and the Southern Church. That's not quite exactly accurate in that there were some congregations in the Southern states that were part of the predominantly Northern denomination, which was the United Presbyterian Church in the USA. And then the Southern Church was the Presbyterian Church in the US. Super confusing, right? They simply just said, we don't want the A. So we're PCUS. And the other group said, we're not going to be the PCUSA because that was an old name. So we're going to be the UPCUSA. And then when they reunited in 1983, you had the UPC USA and the PC US, and they said, we need new wineskins. So we're going to go with a totally new name that's never been used before. PC parentheses USA, because that's never been seen before. That's God's <laughs> moving in us. But anyways, so in the UPC USA in the 1970s, uh, the Native American Consulting Committee, their caucus suggested like we don't want lower ordination standards, but we want different ordination standards that are better fitting to our social location and our cultural context. The idea of taking the same kind of exams and going through the same kind of procedures that were really built for, um, to your question, Amy, really built for white men and ultimately perhaps opened up some for uh, white persons of all gender identities, but still very white. So can we work together to create kind of equitable access, new standards and a new procedure and new processes? And to this day, that has not happened. I found their argument fairly convincing, but it's, I think it's a minority opinion, even today in 2021 in the PCUSA. I share this, Amy, not to like kind of throw stones at someone else and take it off the seminaries, but just to point to the kind of the larger structures and all that's in place. And then the question becomes like, what do congregations like yours do? Like what do the minister members and the ruling elders who are um, commissioners at your presbytery, like what can they do? I think, Amy, that's kind of my answer. There are so many different like uh, things that need to happen. So I think the best thing is for all of them to be happening simultaneously and hopefully with some kind of uh, collaboration. Does that help, Amy? I know I didn't fully answer your question. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Grace, do you wanna jump in? Yeah, thanks. Um, in the first part of your lecture, um, you talked about the argument made by anti-abolition or by abolitionists from Northern states um, that in some cases they, they argued that, be, that we should send slaves or black people to Liberia. So that because um, the anti-black um, sentiment was just too great to overcome in this country. And 
and I and I think that that are I think that that it is qualitatively different from the sense of um, from a sense that I also think is 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 present in our denomination um, today and among people of you know thoughtful thoughtful people who are trying to be um, very accommodating today. Um, it is different, but it there's a, a little bit of a similar quality that I, I'm troubled by. And so I want to name that, that um, there is this sense in our denomination that we should accommodate people wanting to be with like people. And, and that's a tribalism, that there's a, a comfort in being with people who are like you. And this rears its head in all kinds of situations, including the conversations that, that our church, that a, um, a refugee welcome team is actively having with organizations that work with refugee resettlement. And the question is, you know, where, where should we settle? Where should we, where should we direct our um, housing funds, right? It, should it be in those parts of the city where they'll find other people who are from their same ethnic or national um, background, or, or should it be in a community that will be you know, welcoming and will put forth resources, but of hospitality and, 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 and to help people get on their feet, but that are very different where the language, the culture and, and, the, and the life experience is gonna be very different from the refugees experience. And, um, and so while I know that tribalism is different than racism, there is sort of a flip side, you know, <laughs> there's a connection between the two sentiments. And um, I just wanted to name that, that the sense of accommodating people who want to be or who we think would want to be with people like themselves is still a strong um, presence and voice among well-intentioned people. And, and I think um, there's even backing for that. Like, you know, there are, there are many statistics that show how, how communities, ethnic, similar communities, can really work together and, and help each other to, to, um, to become more socioeconomically stable. And so there are statistics like that, but I, I, do, um, I do wonder if, the, if this anti-Black racism is one version of just a human universal human tribalism you know what i mean that that um that is very prevalent and always has been um the in the second part of your talk you talked about how um theological educational institutions like seminaries and and maybe even you know schools in general haven't sufficiently um grappled with with the with the anger, and you named anger, um, about um, racism and, and slavery. And 
I'm wondering if part of that too is that they just haven't sufficiently grappled with how do we deal with anger about anything? Um, because <laughs> sex is anger about sexism, anger about, you know, about any identity issues or about abuses of power. I'm just wondering if part of the problem about this is that we haven't sufficiently grappled with how do we deal constructively and meaningfully with anger, not just the object of our anger. So those are the things I'm just, the, that are on my mind that, that your lecture raised. Thanks, Joyce. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, there's a lot there. I think um, I hear you on your latter point about anger. I think um, where I resonate with Lowen um, is like the more I study, uh, he calls it racial slavery. Um, I think it's also known as American enslavement, which is what Brian Stevenson uh, calls it more recently. <clears throat> but um, I do think the one critique of the abolitionist movement was very much that um, like by your angry accusations, particularly of other Christians as um, as evil and demonic and satanic and, and brutality and the like, that like that that's not productive. Um, that that's not helping your movement. Um, but it was a, uh, so at one level, I think several historians would say like their anger was totally justified. That it really was just a horrible, unspeakably evil institution of slavery that 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 needed to be abolished yesterday, um, and that all the other approaches of moderation and of collaboration and of working together why. that they were not okay. effective. That um, perhaps. Like, I think it's the question of like how we understand um, progress. Uh, so for example, the, uh, this one kind of theologian or historian, Reinhold Niebuhr was his name. He taught at Union Seminary in New York City in the 30s, 1940s. Uh, he did some work with labor unions in Detroit beforehand. Um, Barack Obama said that he was his favorite theologian at one point, but, um, he noted that uh, in this book, I think in the 50s, he published it, The Irony of American History, is that um, like progress didn't happen like, uh, it didn't happen in a gradual kind of upward movement. That in every case where progress was made, it was not a movement of progress, but it was a drama of conflict, right? He called it the zigs and zags of history that conflict is necessary for change. Um, so I don't, I don't know. So I think it's bad if like seminaries like mine and congregation like yours, if it's always like 
there's always a lot of conflict. That's probably not good and always a lot of anger and people yelling at each other all the time. But I wonder, Joyce, I wonder what you think. I think the alternative is also not very productive, like having no conflict of avoiding any kind of, of matter or discussion or anything that might create any kind of conflict, like for the sake of peace or unity. Like, it seems to me that that doesn't work either. Because I do think that was actually the, the Presbyterian denomination, the mainstream, the largest group, the PCUSA back then, before it divided Northern and Southern. I do think that was pretty much their approach. Like Methodists, for example, and Baptists split in 1844 and 1845. And so there was a lot of pressure at the Presbyterian Church USA General Assembly in 1845 to divide over slavery, but they didn't. And the idea was, like, this is a better strategy, like, among the Northern Presbyterians. Like, we can still worship together and talk together and, like, gently persuade one another. But none of that actually ever happened. Like, slavery was not solved apart from, as we all know, a really bloody, awful conflict. Um, so anyways, I wrestle with that, too. I wrestle with kind of Niebuhr's notion of, uh, I think hunting for conflict is bad. But I think avoiding conflict in any kind of congregation or seminary is also bad. Like, so what's that balance? The problem, Joyce, and all of us is the balance is probably like a super thin tightrope, <laughs> uh, to be honest and realistic about it. Um, anyways, I don't know if that gets at all your quest comments, Joyce. I appreciate that. I'm sorry that I don't have. Sure. No, thank answers. you. Thank you very much. No, I, I, I think, um, you know, your comments are about conflict are, are making me realize like, you know, in my graduate studies, there was always a lot of tension and um, I would say critique, but not necessarily conflict. And so um, I think there's a difference between being critical and, and sharpening and taking a very precise and critical, rigorous approach, that's different um, than just conflict, I think. Um, um, and if y'all have a few more minutes, I think we've got a good discussion. Uh, Dr. Yu, do you have a few more minutes? That was great. Um, Amy, thank you for your comment in the, um, in the chat. Um, we'll draw our attention to that. Um, and then Stu, you've got your hand raised. You know, well, there is there is a touch of irony in my the fact that Joyce is leaving because uh, uh, well, first of all, thank you, Doctor Yu. I love this, and thank you, Susan and Sarah and and whomever all was was involved in in having you here. And yeah, we could talk for about five more hours, or you know, all semester. Uh, but anyway, my my the reason I brought Joyce up because one of the uh, well, two well, one thing that that I think. I try to wrap my head around is how much it seems to me that that economy uh, and religion, like especially back uh, in the Civil War days and slavery and whatnot, we all everything leaned to economy, you know, and and almost religion was used to justify the reasoning behind why we have to do things was because of the economy uh you know and and that and that seems to run counterintuitive to religion or at least at least to me uh and i thought 
Uh, and Dr. Yu, when you said how, uh, well, and, and uh, Susan, you had, you had brought up reckoning and, and how, you know, looking, searching, what is sort of a reckoning? And Dr. Yu, you stated how we go, we take a defensive posture rather than leaning into the goodness and, and all the uplifting uh, parts of, of our religion. And I started to think about in, in reckoning. And when you had Dr. Uh, when you spoke of Benjamin Palmer, I was, I thought to myself, wait, Benjamin Palmer, that's the Rhodes college guy, you know, or that's Rhodes college. And then, and then I knew that, oh yeah, they're reckoning with taking down his name from one of their buildings. And so my, my question was kind of to Joyce too about how you know, like a, an institution handles its own form of reckoning, and and I agree with your comments on how uh, you know it's important to shine a light on what you know, and we are a reformed church, and and you know we shine a light and go from there. Uh, but it's it's always interesting to me how institutions and higher eds uh you know handle this reckoning uh you know of race and i think and from uh the rhodes college standpoint i you know there's the whole uh and i i talked to joyce about this a while ago about some other things and i talked a little bit about rhodes and she pointed me to steve haynes as a lecturer there who did a, a lecture on uh, Benjamin Palmer and uh, the curse of Ham and the justification for slavery. And like, is that back then all those, was that the primary, you know, yeah, go look at the, you know, book of Genesis and, and, you know, and Ham and therefore slavery, uh, you know, is that kind of the only real place where folks anchor their racism and justification, which again, is you're justifying economy over humanity. And that seems counterintuitive, uh, you know, to, to religion. So yeah, I mean, I was, you know, there's a lot going on here and there, but uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by that, that, uh, it's the justifications for racism and slavery in religion seem to be so weak, uh, yet at the same time so strong for those who wrap themselves up in religion to justify racism or slavery or tribalism like Joyce was getting to where we, you know, I'm a white Anglo-Saxon man, so I am, you know, the divine person here. So, all right, I will stop my, I could keep going, but I will stop. Thanks, Stu. I, that's really great commentary. I, let's see, to respond, I, I, briefly, I can say, I do think white Presbyterians and other white Christians defending slavery, I do think um, they, there was more consensus on a literalist interpretation of the Bible 
uh, and human history to defend slavery. Uh, it was this idea that instances of slavery um, with over excessive uh, physical corporal punishment um, and it's clear in the in the history the rampant uh, sexual violence against enslaved black women like those those sins needed to be reformed but they did not call for a total reformation of the system itself. I think the challenge you have when you look at systems is, to your point on the economy, I think it's something that Christians wrestle with today, uh, maybe differently than in the antebellum period. But for example, antebellum US capitalism was not, there was very little scriptural defense for it. You know what I mean? Like even some pro-slavery white Presbyterians acknowledge that like our system of economics is actually pretty counter to Acts chapter two and the idea that all the believers were together and had everything in common. I think that's verses 42 to 47. Like I think even today in 2021, I don't, so it's the, the question of like, like, how do we apply the truths and the principles of the Bible to our present context and to acknowledge the necessary complexity and to acknowledge that, like, there isn't a kind of simple answer or rubric to applying the Bible to today. And I think that's hard, Stu, and to all of us for a lot of Christians, because it runs counter to this other theological claim that reform the Presbyterian Christians hold to as well, is they called it back then, we don't call it that now, but they called it the perspicacity of scripture or the gospel, like the clear clarity of it. Like, like the Bible is super simple. It's a message of a triune God who loved fallen humankind and sent Jesus into the world. You know, like that's a message. You don't need a fancy education to understand that. The simplest illiterate farmer to the most literate, like biology professor can understand that, that that's the beauty of the Bible and the Christian message. And so the idea that actually that part may be true, but a whole lot of other things about the Bible and how we apply it to the complexity of 1840 or 2021, it's not straight line, you know? And I think that really troubles folks. Am I wrong on that, Stu, to everyone? I think it's it's hard for folks to hold those two things in productive tension. It's either one is true and the other is not, or the other is true and this one is not. It's not possible that both these things can both be true. I think that's one of the dilemmas that we're facing today and that they faced back then. That is, that's a great answer. And, and I, yeah, the two, I need to remind myself that, you know, all the time, uh, yeah, and the literal, and there are folks, right, whose interpretation, you know, is literal. Uh, you know, I totally disagree with the, like, uh, constitutional, like Antonin Scalia, you know, a constitutional scholar, but he can be absolutely right about things that he believes in and interprets. And, uh, you know, I have to sort of uh, keep that in mind, 
it makes no sense to me, but uh, yeah, that folks can have these interpretations of things. Because um, right, it's so simple to me. Uh, do we have any, maybe we can uh, have one more question. I am curious then, I'm gonna jump in. <laughs> I'm curious and I don't wanna tie this in a bow because I don't think that's what this is about. I mean, I think you raising the fact that there's a tension here and the complexity. And I think I've heard you say again and again and again, it's contextual, um, you know, how we're responding to this. Um, but I think, you know, overall what I, I'm also hearing you say is that there is a reckoning or a needing to look at our history and go beyond trying to find the easiest, you know, quote unquote, easiest response to why this happened. And I wonder, and I feel like that is not just in the church, that's in, in so many different sectors. And I'm curious, because I know that the church learns, you know, can learn valuable tools, not just from ourselves, but from those, you know, society around us like have you seen any place where you've seen this kind of historical reckoning happening and, and and obviously understanding that it's so contextual to that but have you seen any place where you have seen that really work in what you say oh that's what that could look like there or, I mean I'm just curious oh thanks Sarah I don't I don't know again you're right because it's so um, it's, it is very contextual and specific. I think, um, <clears throat> like, I wonder, I, you, go ahead. No, you please. Well, I mean, I, you know, I guess one of the things I think about is, and I think we hearken back to this a lot, right. But the kind of the truth and reconciliation model in South Africa of like, and that was not necessarily reckoning well i mean maybe it was just sort of reckoning with our history but it's also reckoning with our our the, the things that happened to us directly i wonder if that kind of if there's a story tell if there's a, like a a storytelling that we can that oh yeah I okay don't know. i mean yeah, yeah. Sarah, i i hear you sarah i think so one thing that's been uh, pretty encouraging to me again me too i don't want to kind of put a bow on it and you know yeah. Uh, but uh, I do think what's exciting in the PCUSA for some things that might not be exciting, what is exciting is congregations are more and more like specifically contextually discerning uh, for themselves, like in the pursuit of racial justice, like here's one just issue, like in the through the 1990s, and some of you will know more about this than me, when I read General Assembly Minutes and I see all that was published by the PCUSA, really the emphasis was multiculturalism. Every individual congregation needs to be, I think the number is 80%. A church that is 80% one kind of dominant group, let's say 80% black or 80% white, 80% Asian American, like the goal is to get under 80 because 80 means you're monocultural. But if you're under 80 and you have one fifth of your congregation is of another racial ethnic group, that really was kind of the goal. Like let's all be multicultural. Um, and ultimately the goal of that is the idea behind that I think is like we need our worship on earth to look more like what it'll look like in heaven. That's the theological claim. And the social justice claim, if you will, is 
Like the more we rub shoulders and worship together, for example, predominantly white congregations, the more we have more uh, members of color in our congregation, it will help us, like not just kind of uh, pursue justice in a superficial way, but it'll be more relational and interpersonal and the like. So those things, but I think what's happening now is I think some congregations are saying that's one way, but uh, another way is we're not gonna be a multicultural church. That's just not realistic. And that's not even perhaps how God is calling us. That's not what our neighborhood looks like. Um, but can we be an anti-racist church? You know, can we be a church that leverages the, the endowment, the power, uh, the, the influence that we have in a particular local neighborhood or community? And can we use that for good? Um, right? And so I think that's exciting that some congregations are discerning and saying, I don't think that's a bad thing for a congregation to say. That's not like us being multiracial and having lots of different music and lots of different preaching, that that's not it for us. But for us, it's going to be to use what we have and it's to worship in the ways that are most familiar to us, but to do unfamiliar and uncomfortable things like in the world. I think one challenge to that, Sarah, and to all of us is that there still is the wrestling with the question of politics and Christianity. Like, I think what's helped me is the work of, and you've read some too from seminary too, and I know your group is reading it, Black Liberation Theology, Indigenous American Theology. It's this idea that it's not so much that we want our gospel to be political, but like the only way we're going to truly flourish as co-equal children of God in the United States is through political means. Like how else are we going to get access to clean water and access to a livable wage and access to equal opportunities in education? Ultimately, yes, I want my congregation to pray for it and I want my congregation to support me in it, but ultimately it's going to be through legislation. Like that's like, that's the air we breathe, if you will, in this country. Like no major social change and reform will happen outside of politics. I think there's a lot of good things that can happen outside of politics, but ultimately this like super like separation. And I experienced it, and Sarah, maybe you did when you are at Columbia too. Like we have students that come to seminary now and they say, I'm not going to ever preach politics from my pulpit. I'm not going to ever engage in politics as a minister of word and sacrament. And I, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't say that that's a wrong view, but I think for me, the question is, are, what are your goals in ministry? Like how, how are, how are, um, yeah, how are, how are, how are we going to get to a more racially equitable United States? Like maybe there are, and I don't want to like poo poo on this kind of apolitical stance, like, Stu, what you were saying, I think for some people, they really hold it dear, near and dear to their Christianity. So for me to say, like, that's a terrible version of Christianity, that's not very helpful. <laughs> that doesn't get us anywhere. So it's more like, okay, you're not going to be a political preacher in your definition of politics. Like, then how else? How else are we going to get to the change that we want to see? And there might be. Like, I, you know, Sarah, you can tell. I'm just going to be honest. I don't think that that's a really good view. <laughs> no, 
That's right. terrible. And this is recorded, right. so that's terrible for me to no, say. It's but okay. It's personally, okay. <laughs> I don't think that that's a really good view. And I think You're some crashing. of it comes from my own kind of racial, ethnic immigrant background. But nonetheless, yeah. for those who have that view, I want to respect it. And I want to see how that view can help us get to a common goal. Right. Is that a fair thing to say without me? Yeah. yeah, you can tell I'm still wrestling with how to engage yeah. that question of politics and Christianity. Yeah. Some Sarah will say, and some of our students say this, I'm going to engage in politics, but not partisanship. Right. Like that's another right. way to do it. But then I'm like, we're only, we're a two-party country. <laughs> like, what's that mean? Politics? That just seems to be like a play on words. <laughs> right. right. Is that, I'm terrible. I'm being terrible right now, but okay. I think you all understand <laughs> my own. I'm just really, you can see my own dilemma about how to engage mm -hmm. these questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that is a, it's, that's a very real question. And you asked, I mean, I, that was definitely a part of a huge part of our conversation with Stan Saunders and Chuck Campbell and many of the different teachers that I had a privilege to work with um, there. And also the challenge that thinking about politics that thinking about the gospel also as political. I mean, thinking about scripture as as political, as necessarily engaging with the world and the, and policies in the world around us, and and bringing our Christian lens and our views of uh, salvation and uh, and justice and uh, gospel, you know, hospitality to that. Um, and so I, but it, it is a challenge, and, and I hear that debate, and and I know that you know I've served in different places where that debate looks different, um, where there are some that are much more eager to lean into that and there are some that aren't. And um, so it is, it's a good, I thank you for your honesty in that struggle. Cause I think it really does say that we as, you know, um, we as Christians have a responsibility to be moral actors in the world around us, that there, there is, at least that's how I would frame that, you know, that there is a call in our, in our, understanding of who God is, is to be moral agents in not just the building or the community of the church, but in, in the place in which we inhabit. Um, so I really, I appreciate that. And I heard Susan say that was refreshing <laughs> to, to have that, you know, to be able to be honest and, and say that. Um, so thank you. Thank you for grappling uh, with that, with us. I appreciate that. Um, well, I know folks that there are some that really do need to step off and, and we said four o'clock. So thank you for holding on. I wish we could keep going. Uh, Dr. Yu, this really has just been a gift to us all. And, um, and we hope to be able to invite you back sometime in person uh, so that we can host you at Swarthmore Press and that would be a wonderful thing too. So um, thank you all for your participation with us on this afternoon. And, um, and I invite, <clears throat> you to, um, you know, definitely continue to engage with the adult formations work and what they're doing and, um, and, and um, any of the places where we're trying to really frame this conversation at Swarthmore Press. So, and we do have one more lecture uh, in our series, which is going to be um, November 21st. Sorry, I just realized I didn't have my calendar in front of me, so I want to make sure I'm putting you the right date. Um, November 21st, uh, Claudio Carvales uh, is coming uh, to Swarthmore Press. He's in New York, and he's going to look with us at worship and um, and our and anti-racism and practices of liturgy and worship. So 
Um, we hope that you will uh, join us that day for his work with us too. So um, blessings upon each of you, Dr. Yu, blessings upon you. Thank you for your work and, uh, and for your time with us. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode from our anti-racist faith lecture series. This was a Zoom recording with Dr. William Yu, who spoke on Presbyterian church history and race. We'll see you soon. May the peace of Christ be with you.